Welcome to Death Do Us Part Podcast, hosted by my wife, Jamie. Hello. And myself, Mark. What up, y'all? Hey. Hi. I hate where my microphone's sitting. Yeah, put it by your mouth. I'm trying. So what up, babe? Nothing. We're both crabby today. Yeah, I'm not feeling so hot today. Yeah. So. I got a little cold. cold. Again. Oh, the sniffles. The fuck? Coughing is, oh my, it's awful. Yeah. Like I want to cry. I'm sorry. It hurts. Well, I could imagine if you, your head probably feels like it's going to explode. It, it feels like the back of my brain is going to come out of my incision. No. So. I'm sorry. I'm a little crotchety. I'm sorry. Yeah. So what else is up? Nothing. Nothing. Mm. I've been all night. With yeah. The, like, I just keep finding more. more. Yeah, this is definitely going to be a two-parter. This is a two-parter. There's no way I'm going to sit for like three hours. No, <clears throat> no. and it it's a two-parter. For it's a good sure. case, though. We got some inside info. We did, and holy fuck! And I'll, if you're not familiar with it, this is this is kind of a local case. This happened in Illinois, mm-hmm. and it happened with a high-profile person. Yep. Um, Which comes into account a lot, and it shouldn't. Yeah, a 1985 Chicago Bear. So he he was given good treatment, which he shouldn't have. He should have been just yeah treated like a suspect, like a normal investigation. But he was not. He was not. He was you know because of his profile, he was given that you know well you're a celebrity and whatever. Which. Uh, okay, so he was on the 1985 Bears, who anybody our age and older knows, they won the Super Bowl. Yeah, and especially was, from Chicago. Right, it was you, you, probably... Midwest, you mm-hmm. know the 85 Bears were the shit. They were the best Bears team yeah. ever. Um, This case happens in 2007. Right. How long are we going to live them glory days there, buddy? Right. I mean, I get it. Like... It was awesome. He made some great plays in the Super Bowl. He was in the, the remember the video, Super Bowl Shuffle? Yeah. yeah. He was in that, in the back, in the corner, dancing, kind of dancing, because he didn't know how. But it was 1985. Yeah. This happened in 2007. Right. But why are we still, I mean, there was even an investigator that was like, he was, it, it was huge in my eyes, but I had to treat him like a normal suspect. Yeah. Well, you didn't. Right. Dillweed. So. Right. Yeah. So the other thing. Okay. <clears throat> we said it in the Patreon episode. Real quick. We have new Patreons. Yes. Okay. So. them out. Um, we shouted a few out during the Patreon episode, but yeah. we're going to re-shout them out, and we've gotten two more since then. Awesome. One of them is Rebecca. Hey. She's like, I finally stopped being trash and signed up. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you got like 12 episodes now. You can binge yeah so rebecca is a new one so then we have brandy becky janelle who i'll blame her in this one too she's the reason i vape uh (laughs) yes uh, yeah emily amy jen r christine 
Rebecca Ann. All right. Who's my soul sister? And Amanda Hall. So awesome. Thank you guys so much. Seriously. Oh my god, I just saw Rebecca's email. <laughs> what? Her, her email is instant oatmeal. <laughs> wow. That's cool. Yeah. But thank you guys so much. You guys absolutely rock. Yeah, you guys are amazing. And the Patreons that keep messaging me about a bar crawl, bitches, we're going to make this happen. <laughs> we're going to make it happen. We'll just push you, babe. Thanks. Yeah. Somebody will sit on your lap and we can push them. And yeah. Then we can take turns. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, that's really all the business yeah. we have, because this one's kind of long. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me just explain. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are doing the case of Marnie Yang mm-hmm. and the murder of Ronnie Ryder. Mm-hmm. Now, it is going to be two parts, and in part one, if this tells you anything about the fucking case at all whatsoever, uh, Marnie Yang is... Not mentioned. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's Funny. interesting. Yes. Very interesting. <laughs> um, I don't know what else to say so about that. Marnie Yang is in prison for life for the murder of Ronnie Ryder and her unborn baby girl, Skylar. Mm-hmm. So what to tell you when I'm doing a two-part murder case and the person in jail isn't even in part one? Yeah. And there's not a lot of background on the two of them. So. Oh, really? It's not like I'm doing a huge background on Sean and a huge background on Ronnie. Like, it's not there. Hmm. There's websites about Sean that flat out say we couldn't find anything. Really? So. Which is funny. Like, you're this big guy. People can usually dig shit up. Yeah. Um, Usually their whole life story is. You can't find shit. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So, yeah, what's that tell you about a murder case when Mm -hmm. the person in prison isn't even in part one? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And depending on the time, I might get to the murder on part one. Really? And she's still not in it. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. Yikes. So, is everybody... Oh, Rebecca just sent me a picture. That's funny that I was just talking about her. Um, okay, so you ready? I'm ready. Right. So, according to Wikipedia, a false confession is defined as an admission of guilt for a crime the individual did not commit. Although such confessions seem counterintuitive, they can be made voluntarily, perhaps to protect a third party, put a pin in that, mm-hmm. or induced through coercive interrogation techniques, put a pin in there. Young people are particularly vulnerable to confessing, especially when stressed, tired, and or traumatized, and have a significantly higher rate of false confessions and or false statements than adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, this will be interesting for you Illinois people. Uh, in 2017, a project called the National Registry of Exonerations, uh, which was being done at the University of Michigan, was... <clears throat> Uh, They were seeking out documents and studies of exoneration cases based on publicly available information. So nothing, they didn't go like above and beyond. Right. 
So they have logged nearly uh, 2,100 wrongful convictions in the United States mm. um, since 2017. And this, Damn. this, um, that's a lot. Yeah, this report uh, was done 2021. So you figure four years. Jesus I don't know how Christ. far back they went. Like, yeah. so I don't know like what year it started, but mm. um, 193 of those came from Illinois. Which put the United oh States God. false confession rate for Illinois at 37%. Well, I mean, a vast majority of that has to be the Burge era. Oh, just wait. By the way, I didn't. I told Mark a little bit about this case because I needed to like talk out loud. But he didn't listen to a fucking word I said. No, so he's going to be just as surprised as everybody else. Yeah. He, he kind of just at me. You kept talking, and I told you I just wanted to be surprised. So I, I did my best not to listen to you. <laughs> you always do your best I know. not to listen to me. Yeah. That's true. Um, so of the roughly 250 recorded United States cases involving a false confession, more than 20... So they were doing wrongful convictions yeah 250 of those cases were wrongful convictions from false confessions okay okay more than 28 percent of that 250 came mm. from illinois yeah like i said probably because of the burge based on this illinois has a false confession rate more than three times higher than the national average of 12 percent jesus christ and one in four of those happened in cook county which Burge? Yeah. If How people, many was it with Burge? I don't know. A lot. I know it was but a lot. But it wasn't just him. There was another detective. Mm-hmm. I think Watts. I don't. know. If I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, those those of you not from this area, Burge was a famous detective in Chicago, and his tactics with his people, he would basically just torture them for to get confessions yeah and once one came out yeah shit rolls downhill man he's been involved in a lot a lot but i don't know i mean burge was in the like 80s right Mm, 80s and 90s so i don't know how far back this went yeah so it might not all be him yeah you know but that's fucking insane yeah well, Which, like I said, there was another detective. I think Watts was yeah. his last name, and that was more recent. We'll also talk about a couple cases. I don't know if I'll do it in this episode. I'll probably do it in part two. Um, there's multiple cases of false confessions mm-hmm. from one particular task force mm. that the guys have been exonerated through DNA. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So some of the wasn't my task force. No, was it? no, okay. no. Um, some of the details are pretty jarring. Really? Yeah. Oh, Sorry, like I'm the, trying to fix my necklace. Yeah, I could hear it. Sorry. Um, uh, oh, I'll get to it. Believe me. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, there's a couple things on here, like being a cop's wife. I know some things are eh, sketchy. Mm-hmm. Being the wife of a task force member (laughs) come on guys there's there's one thing that i have to find out if we can post it but it's appalling (laughs) it's appalling what it's a picture okay it's a it's a i have to find out if i can talk about it okay 
<clears throat> I don't know if it's a public picture. Okay. Uh, just know that it's it's appalling. And I could never in a million years, as much as I know you guys joke around, and I mean you guys as in your task force, mm-hmm. um, never in a million years would this happen. Oh, boy. So, that yeah. That sounds bad. <clears throat> it is bad. It gets really bad. So, now, I do have uh, a lot of inside information. Um, 99% of what I'm going to say is proven fact. I've gotten it from police reports, court records, grand jury testimony. Right. Um, There are a few things that are speculated. Those things that are speculated, I will say it is speculated and that I don't have proof. But the vast majority of this is proven fact from court records like i said right. police reports stuff like that but mark at two o'clock in the morning woke up one day he's like what the fuck are you doing i was like yeah. i am reading grand jury testimony can you leave me alone <laughs> so okay so <clears throat> i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it up very shortly and then i won't after that mm-hmm. um so ronnie Ryder and sean gale had been together for close to 18 years in uh 2007 she was seven months pregnant with his child, mm-hmm. and according to her brother, Thad, she was happier than he'd ever seen her. But looks can be deceiving. The last 18 years could be called tumultuous at best. The pregnancy just increased the tension between Ronnie and Sean, <clears throat> and the times they spent together were now few and far between. Sean Lenard. Uh, Gail was born March 8, 1962, in Newport News, Virginia, to James and Dolores. James is deceased, and as far as I know, Dolores is still alive. Uh, He was a standout football player in high school and recruited by several schools. Sean decided to follow his brother Jimmy to Ohio State University, where he graduated in 1984 with a degree in education. He did play football for them. He played safety for Ohio State. Um, That same year that he graduated, he was drafted into the NFL. Uh, He was the 10th round, 271st overall pick to the Chicago Bears. He played for the Bears until 1994, then went to to, uh, the San Diego Chargers in 95 for one season where he then retired. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sean was part of the 1985 Super Bowl winning Chicago Bears. And then I put as a note, uh, this becomes a huge to do with the case but I'm not going to bring it up again unless I absolutely have to. And if it's absolutely relevant, because fuck him. Because <laughs> so, honestly, then. I don't give a fuck that you played for the Chicago Bears. Yeah, it has literally nothing to do with this case, except when it worked out in his favor, mm-hmm. which is stupid. Because again, it's 22 fucking years later. I mean, I've worked, you, you know for a fact, I've worked some high profile cases Mm -hmm. with known people and I don't give a shit. No. I'm going to work the case and that's it. I I don't give a shit about your poll or whatever. Right. It literally has nothing to do with what happened. Right. Because if shit hits the fan, I'm the one responsible. Right. Right. Not you. So now I watched a 2020 episode on it. The first 15 minutes and you figure with commercials the whole episodes are like 45 minutes in total the first 15 minutes was about sean and the bears (laughs) 
Okay. Hi, someone was murdered. Right. What? Who gives a fuck about like? It's awesome. They won the Super Bowl. That's great. Mike Dicka, love you. The fridge, great, awesome. Nothing to fucking do with this. No. I listened to a Dateline episode. First seven minutes out of a thirty-eight minute episode was about the Bears. I will bring it up as it's relevant, and that is it. Yeah. So, uh, Ronnie Rain Ryder, which, what an awesome name, by the way, uh, was born September 6th, 1965 in Dubuque, Iowa, to parents Doug and Landa. Uh, at some point, the family moved to Potosi, Wisconsin. Rhonda, or Rhonda, Ronnie attended the University of Wisconsin Platteville, which happened to be where the Bears' summer practice field was. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Sean met Ronnie in 1990 at a charity event. I believe it was a charity basketball game, which is funny because that comes into play later. Yeah. Um, the pair. Uh, hmm. The pair began dating uh, after you know Ronnie and her friend would go to practices to yeah. to meet the guys. Right. Whatever. They're sports guys. Cool. Yeah. Get it. Liam Hendricks, 100%. Got it. Cool. Your um, boyfriend. My boyfriend. Um, so eventually, Ronnie ended up moving from Wisconsin to be closer to Sean around 1991 or 1992. Mm. Um, according to friends, Sean was initially happy about the re- uh, quote-unquote relationship, because, mm, uh, but soon learned that she had allegedly dated several other members of the Chicago Bears. Whoa. Allegedly. Um, it's also said that it wasn't that she was dating other members of the Chicago Bears, but a friend of her said that she had a one night stand with Maurice Davis hmm. and he found out about that uh. and he held it over her head literally till the day she fucking died. Hmm. So, and this one night stand was prior to her meeting, Sean. So she never cheated on him, nothing like that. And he just. Guys don't care though. Right. Well then don't fucking date her. Hmm. You're going to hold it over her head for 18 years. Don't fucking date her. Whatever. Uh, But it's funny that he was pissed about this because um, he was dating other women. A lot of them. (laughs) Um, He had been seeing Ginger Beam and Dawn. Oh, that's a great name. I know. Dawn Okamoto. Moto. Like, hello, Moto. Sure. Um, Before he met Ronnie... Mm-hmm. And he continued to see them uh, twice weekly or weekly, depending on his schedule, um, up until Ronnie's death. Jeez. Yeah. Playa. Oh, my God. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Seriously. Um, per, what did Gail Edmonds say? Oh, I meant to write Ginger. Uh, Per a police investigative report, which was an interview with Ginger, she had been seeing Sean for approximately 21 years. She met him at a charity basketball game. (laughs) What's going on at these basketball games, dude? It comes up again. (laughs) So just keep that. Uh, The relationship was, and this is per her, per her interview, the relationship was private and only sexual in nature with an occasional dinner. Uh, she'd go to him. He had never been to her house. Mm-hmm. She met Ronnie uh, 11 or 12 years ago when they had the first of several threesomes. Hey, all right. Dude, uh, is he dipped in gold? 
don't know. I'm <laughs> I don't fucking kind of jealous right now. Um, she said that she last saw Ronnie in March of 2007 in court uh, regarding regarding in, regarding shut up uh, regarding an order of uh, protection request that I'll get to later. But mm-hmm. it's referencing um, threatening letters that her Ronnie and several other women started receiving in. Uh, March of 2006. Is that your phone? Oh, it is, yeah. yeah. Um, from a woman named Monica. Okay. You remember that. Uh, Ginger learned of Ronnie's pregnancy in mid-September of 2007. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. She knew of other relationships, but they, you know, they didn't talk about them. Yeah. Uh, she said she last saw Sean on September 30th, 2007 at his home between the hours of 6 and 930, uh, where she parked in his private garage after being buzzed in. That was their normal routine. Yeah. Um, oh, I'll say that later. So, Sean continued with the NFL until 1995, after which he became involved in many ventures, uh, such as being a commentator with CBS, NBC, Fox, ESPN, and WGN. Mm. Uh, he then began working as an NFL analyst for Sky Sports in London. Oh, really? Where he currently now lives. In London? Yeah. Oh, wow. With a significant other and two children. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah. Dude couldn't pull out of a fucking driveway. No, no, no. Um, he commuted, though, for a very long time. He mm-hmm. didn't move to London until after Ronnie's murder. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Ronnie's friends described Sean and Ronnie's relationship as abusive and controlling. Uh, they would make up and break up, and he would woo her back with jewelry. Of he course. was very narcissistic and manipulative. Um, and Ronnie repeatedly told Sean that she wanted more, to which Sean repeatedly brushed her off. Uh, Per a police investigative report, friend Craig White, who was a personal trainer who worked for the Institute of Human Performance, which was the gym that Ronnie went to, said Sean told Ronnie her chest was too small, so she had a, quote, boob job. All right. When he said they weren't big enough, she had a second augmentation. Oh, Jesus. Both forced and both at her expense. How fucking big do you want them? And she's tiny. What are you going to do with her? She's them? like 5'9 and 130 pounds. Oh, she's a small, like, she's tiny. Um, it, he also stated that Ronnie was very much in love with Sean and he was her world, yeah. um, but that Sean had sketchy dating practices and was a player. Mm. There's your word, babe. Yeah, player! Uh, Ronnie was aware of this, but seemed to be able to, quote, tune it out or not make an issue of it. Uh, but she was very devoted to Sean and would do anything for him. Mm. Um, and as as far as everyone knows, she didn't see anyone else the entire time they were together. Yeah. So. Um, <clears throat> uh, I don't know if I believe that. But... Okay. I'm just saying. I, um, I think they're both players. When Ronnie needed a new vehicle, um, Sean, who owned multiple vehicles yeah multiple was kind enough to um sell her a jeep that he owned hey that's nice how about you fucking give it to me you (laughs) jackwad fuck (laughs) fucking cheapskate oh my god so throughout their relationship uh ronnie actually became pregnant multiple times oh really 
um, when she got pregnant the first time, she told Sean, and he was pissed. Um, oh, yeah. Shortly after he found out about the first pregnancy, mm. she received a call from a person representing an attorney for Sean who told her, quote, I understand you are trying to extort money from my client, Mr. Sean Gale, by becoming pregnant. Oh, wow. Uh, Ronnie told friends she thought Sean didn't want the baby. Duh. You think? Uh, she repeatedly tried to speak with Sean, and all he would say was, quote, well, are you going to fix the problem? Mm. So Ronnie had an abortion. Schmishmortion. Schmishmortion. How about fucking wrap it up, dude? I, t- I just said he couldn't pull out of a fucking driveway. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Which comes up later. Uh, the second pregnancy occurred sometime within the three years prior to Ronnie's death, uh, possibly 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, she had gone off the pill due to health reasons, which she told Sean, so he was well fucking aware of it. Yeah. Uh, she was terrified to tell Sean because of his reaction and fighting with the first pregnancy. When she told Sean, he said, quote, if you have this baby, I will take it away from you and you will never see it. Oh, nice So guy. Ronnie gave in and had another abortion. Smish abortion. Per Ronnie's friend Tracy, uh, Ronnie was a practicing Catholic and felt extreme guilt for having sinned. Yeah. In early 2007, Ronnie again found out she was pregnant. She was super excited and happy. And said she was not doing the drama and arguing about an abortion. She was 100% keeping this baby because this could be her last chance. Now, I've got a question. <clears throat> and this may seem stupid. I don't know. But does it do damage when no. you have no. an abortion? No. It doesn't? No. Okay. So, I mean. No, it's similar to a, a DNC, which is where they go in and they scrape the lining of the uterus. Yeah. And it grows back. The lining grows back. Oh, Okay. Okay, I didn't didn't know that, so. There you go. There's your tiny lesson. Yeah, the more you know. Yeah, so uh, at 41, she's like, this could be my last fucking chance of keeping this baby. Um, This obviously caused her concern, thinking about telling Sean, because she expected the same response from Sean as before, um, that it would, Ronnie was concerned that he would say it would change his entire life and it would damage his reputation. Sure. What? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the fact that you're banging 18 chicks at one time would ruin your reputation. Not that you got your girlfriend of 18 years pregnant. Right. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. I'm just saying. Uh, It's exactly what happened, though. So she told Sean he got super pissed again, saying that this pregnancy would negatively affect his career and his lifestyle. Of course. His lifestyle, yes. His career, no. Right. It's 2007, dude. Dick. Uh, To which my notes say, perhaps pull out sooner then. (laughs) Right. Just saying. Uh, Ronnie basically was like, tough shit. I'm keeping the baby. Whether you want it or not, I'm keeping the fucking baby. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> friend Tracy Nugent said that Ronnie told her Sean was slowly getting used to the pregnancy, uh, but he was definitely not excited. She also said Ronnie told her Sean would not allow her to buy things for the baby, telling her, quote, we don't know if the baby will make it and let's not jinx things by buying things for the baby. Let's just wait and see what happens. Mm. 
Yikes. I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. Yikes. Tracy said she thought that this uh, was Sean implying that the baby wouldn't make it to term. Mm -hmm. Now, for all accounts, per her physician in the interview that was done with Mm -hmm. the police, she had a very healthy pregnancy. Yeah. Despite her age. She was a very healthy, fit woman. Right. Pregnancy was great. Um, Sean's friend said that he was one of his friends, which I'll say later too, said that he was super excited about the pregnancy and went to all of her doctor's appointments. Really? Uh, her doctor testified that he didn't come to any. <laughs> what a shit bag. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Tracy said that they fought constantly about marriage, the baby, and her moving to Chicago to either live with him or be closer to him. No. Obviously, you're having a baby. Uh, Sean had his life all set, and he has lots of girlfriends. Ronnie was his regular girl, but Sean doesn't want any changes, and he likes things as they are. Because he's a douchebag. Mm-hmm. Ronnie told Tracy that Sean no longer took her to social events, and since becoming pregnant, he was not visiting her as often. Uh, Because of this, Ronnie came up with the idea that Sean should spend the night at her house on the nights before he was to go to his barber to get a haircut. He would go to Leroy's Barber Shop, which was in North Chicago. Yeah. It's about 42 minutes from Sean's address and about 24 minutes from Ronnie's. So that's why she Where did he live at this time? uh, Chicago. Okay. 1530 North Elk Grove. (laughs) Um, isn't he bald? Yeah. So which why, why, which is the first thing I said. I'm like, haircut. But he, in one of the police reports, it says haircut. And then in parentheses, it says shave. shave. So, but he can't do that himself he in did, the fucking shower? No. He did not. What the yeah. fuck, dude? So as far as Ronnie's friend Tracy knew, this is what had been happening since they made that agreement at the beginning of the pregnancy. Yeah. Uh, it was not. Another friend, Michelle Amentorp. Uh, and she comes up later because she's fucking awesome, mm-hmm. by the way, uh, said in a sworn statement that she did not care for Sean and would constantly question Ronnie about the relationship and Ronnie's de- decisions regarding Sean, and he, quote, wasn't a good fit. It became a, quote, sore, su- sore spot, <clears throat> so the women agreed that they just wouldn't talk about it because they wanted to maintain their friendship. Yeah. Um. Michelle went on to say, quote, Sean is incredibly self-absorbed, narcissistic, and controlling. He was judgmental. Anything that Ronnie did, if he wasn't agreeable, if it wasn't agreeable to him, he was judgmental. So many times I would come to Chicago to visit Ronnie, and she would try to arrange for Sean to join us for dinner or join us for lunch, and he would say he would be there, and then would, and then at the last minute he would pull out. Her words, yeah. not mine. Pull out. Obviously, he can pull out of that. Right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he would never show up. He was a no-show. He was invited to my wedding. He wouldn't come because it would be, and these are her words, all white, and there would be a bunch of people that would be prejudiced against him because he was black. And that completely was not true, not true at all. He was always invited to Ronnie's home in Potosi, Wisconsin, to join them for Christmas and family events, and Ronnie was desperate for him to join because she was proud to be with him. And he would say things like, no, it's a small town in Wisconsin. These people would be prejudiced. He did not take into consideration... No, no one gives a shit. Sir, all your girlfriends are white. Yeah. 
dude, then date someone black. <laughs> so, um, but no one gives a shit. No, it, dude. So she goes on to say he would not take into consideration of Platteville, which is where he practiced, by mm. the way, which is a very, uh, which has a very high population of African American culture, and Platteville was the college, and there was. excuse me, it was not him taking it into consideration. It was just an excuse. He just didn't want anything to do with Ronnie's personal life or her friends. It wasn't important to him. Mm -hmm. Michelle said uh, she's unsure if Sean ever became physically violent, but he was definitely, definitely verbally abusive. He would make her feel like she wasn't good enough and then say, see, this is why I can't trust you. I can never commit to you. You are not trustworthy. She again reiterated that um, she pressured, he pressured Ronnie into getting the breast augmentation. Yeah. Uh, Michelle also talks about. I still don't get, like, dude, how big do you, like, there's only so much motorboating you can do. Right. Well, well, yeah. And she's little. Yeah. I I don't know. I've never been, like, a boob guy, so I don't don't get Mm -mm. it. Okay, you. Um, squeeze them so, on right. motorboat. Awesome. Michelle, <laughs> Michelle talks um, about other things that I will bring up later. But she did say that Ronnie told her, quote, I love him and I am faithful to him. I don't want to be with anyone else. If Sean wants to commit or not, I'm going to have this baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle also talks about Ronnie's life insurance policy in her interview, which I will bring up later. Um, and she stated that she knew that there were issues with a, quote, stalker girlfriend. Okay. So now, I don't, I feel like I did write it, but now I feel like I didn't write it. Well, oh, no, I did. Okay. Wrote so fucking so, much. So uh, another friend, Rhonda, in a police investigative report, <clears throat> excuse me, told them that her and Ronnie, like I said, would attend the Bear Summer practices to try and meet the players. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie and Sean started as an on-off again relationship, uh, but mostly Sean was using Ronnie for sex and would call her to, quote, hook up. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would constantly tell Ronnie she was wasting her time with Sean, and this caused Ronnie to stop talking to her about mm-hmm. her relationship with Sean. Uh, sometime in early 2006, Ronnie told her Sean had another girlfriend, but really gave no details. Uh, The last conversation that she had with Ronnie uh, was concerning Sean keeping secrets from her, such as a recent motorcycle accident that he had had that he did not tell her about. There was also debate about whose last name the baby would have. Yeah. Um, Another friend, Christine, said in a police investigative report, that Ronnie repeatedly talked to Sean about moving in with him, and he repeatedly told her, no, I don't want you to live with me. Yeah. It'll fuck up his lifestyle. Ronnie. Honey. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the thing. Ronnie was fucking gorgeous. Yeah. She's 5'9", 132 pounds. She's fit. She's beautiful. Mm. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Ronnie said it would be the cheaper option. Otherwise, they would have to buy two of any of, of everything. To which Sean said it wasn't going to cost him anything because the baby was not his fucking problem. Dude. Uh, wow. Ronnie had pictures of Sean all over her condo and um, her office. Mm-hmm. And Sean didn't have a shred of evidence of his relationship <laughs> with Ronnie anywhere. Uh, that I can believe. Ronnie's brother Thad told 2020... 
<clears throat> that throughout the 18-year relationship, the family only met Sean a handful of times. Mm-hmm. Three times. <laughs> That's the handful. Wow. Three. That's your handful. They just assumed he was busy because of his status and was under the impression that their relationship was exclusive. Yeah. Uh, the family didn't find out that Sean was seeing other women until the trial. Oh, Jesus. Uh, when the family found out about Sean's 18 other side chicks, her brother, uh, Thad, told 2020, 18? For real? Yeah, I wasn't exaggerating. 18? Yes. How the fuck do you have time for that? This is what I'm saying. How do you have time for one other chick? When are you peeing? <laughs> Dude. <laughs> like, yes, I, I, why, was, and, I wasn't exaggerating. Like, not to be a dick, but like, why would you want to put up with that? He didn't put up with shit. Yeah, true. He didn't put up with shit. They would come over for three, three and a half hours. I struggle with you. Oh, I don't like you 20 out of the 24 hours a day. I don't want another one of you. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Guys, I've I been home for three go- weeks and him and I are going to come to fucking blows. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> going to happen. So, <clears throat> I don't. I wasn't exaggerating when I told you. Dude, this 18. dude is something else. I have like, a list of them. Bro. Yeah. What are you doing, man? Well, we know what he's doing, but I mean, you're in a constant state of humping. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, your wiener is, like, strong, because... So, that's what I'm saying. Is he dipped in gold? He ended up, later on, during his police interview, I say interview for a reason, Mm -hmm. um, they asked him if he was seeing anybody else. And he wrote down... All the names? 16 names of women that he had seen um, and or slept with over the past three years how can he even remember off the, the top of his fucking head i wouldn't That's even a, be able to remember the name when i found that out i'm like does he carry this list in his wallet right. <laughs> <laughs> just popped it out like in case of emergencies here you go go down the list yeah oh, he's man he's, ugh, god so um her brother thad said i wouldn't think that my sister would have put up with that sort of relationship mm. she did his wife, Anna, said, quote, she loved Sean with her whole heart, and I think she expected the same back. I really didn't see any other people at all. It, like, my heart breaks for her. No. In 2005, uh, Sean met a personal trainer and fitness model named Monica Karowska at a Bears promotional event, which I'm pretty basketball sure was game? a charity basketball game. Oh, my game. God. <laughs> God. People, why aren't you playing basketball? How many fucking charity basketball games are there? <laughs> right. Where are these happening? I don't know. Um, oh, my I'm God. I'm pretty sure, yes. I, I read somewhere that it was at a charity <sighs> uh, basketball game. But she's one of your people, babe. What? She was from Poland. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, they dated several months, uh, approximately nine Mm-hmm. Monica was close to Sean's house one night, so she decided to stop by. Uh, she was very much under the impression that her and Sean were exclusive. Mm-hmm. So imagine her surprise when she gets to Sean's house and he's hanging out with some other broad on the couch. Hanging out with his wing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, she starts knocking, per Monica, she started knocking on the door in the window because she wanted to talk to Sean. Sean and his lady friend then ran upstairs. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And I could just picture her with her like Polish accent knocking on the window, you know. Um, hello. <clears throat> is that a Polish accent? It's mine. I don't think. Hello. I don't. I, I don't think that's Polish at all. Open the door. So she did do a TV interview. Yeah. Not a Polish accent that you have there. Not even a little bit. Open the door, Sean. No, babe. No. Do you know? Do you know people from Poland? <laughs> what they sound like? Our cleaning lady. Yeah, and that's not what she sounds like. In my head, this. this is, <clears throat> oh my this god! So they ran upstairs. <clears throat> when Sean didn't answer the repeated knocking and buzzing, uh, Monica retreated, but not before she broke a window. Now, Monica stated that she did not intend to break this window in an attempt to gain entry, but was knocking so hard out of anger that the window broke. Well, she was a personal trainer. I believe that. Fucking muscles. Yes, I believe that she... she, Yeah. Um, When the woman inside finally attempted to leave, Monica was still outside and uh, tried to grab the driver's side door in an attempt to pull the woman out of her car. Jesus. Uh, per Monica, she did not see Sean again after this. Mm. Um, <clears throat> on May, I think, month five, on May 4th, 2006, Tracy Jetzer, a facility administrator for the Chicago Bears, complained to Joseph Hummel of the NFL that she had been receiving harassing phone calls at her job at Soldier Field. Mm. On 5-13-2006, Tracy received another phone call, which she grouped with the others, at Soldier Field from Monica Karowska. They had a, quote, conversation about Sean. Tracy happened to be the woman that Sean was hanging out with when Monica came over. Ah. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, the women in Sean's life started receiving letters at their homes. The letters appeared to be written uh, in somewhat broken English, which they were, and told how Sean was seeing multiple women manipulating and lying to them all. There were six different versions of the letter, all basically saying the same thing, and all including a list of women's names and phone numbers. One version of the letter actually, next to the women's phone numbers, says that, like, which ones he's still sleeping with. Yeah. And next to Marnie Yang's... Oh, so so I did bring her up once. Oh, yeah. Uh, next to Marnie Yang's name, uh, the letter says that she has a child with Sean. Ooh. She does not have a child with Sean. Okay. Doesn't. Okay. okay. Um, Ronnie's mother also received a letter, uh, after which she called Sean with concern over Ronnie's safety. Uh, Sean assured her it was just a crazed fan and he was taking care of it and Ronnie was completely safe. Uh, Sean... And I tried to get some clarification on this, and I I couldn't. So we'll just go by what I think. Okay. Uh, Sean contacted investigator Ed Shue of the NFL. Okay. Uh, Apparently, the Bears have a security detail dedicated to and for active players and Mm -hmm. a separate security detail to and for retired players. Mm. Uh, Ed Shue was the investigator for the retired players. Mm -hmm. What legal authority they have... I don't know. Probably retired cops. He is a retired deputy chief with the ATF. There you go. Um, But what kind of investigative powers they have currently, I don't know. I couldn't find. Uh, But Sean did go to him uh, regarding the issues with Monica. 
um, <clears throat> concerned about the window that he broke and the letters that she was sending. So Sean said Monica was writing these letters. Shu uh, ended up launching his own investigation. On 5-13-2006 at 7.42 a.m., Sean sent an email to two people. It looks like it might be their last names or just nicknames. You, Mickey, and Sakamoto. Uh, regarding, Sakamoto. Yeah, regarding the situation. Quote, guys, please keep this under your hat. I had a problem with a fatal attraction recently with Monica that has been a cause for concern. The problem for me is I really liked her and I wish she hadn't gone psycho for psycho on me because it probably would have worked out between us. Yeah. What? Mm. What? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Cool. Got it. Um, <clears throat> I lost my place. Uh, so far, she smashed a window in my living room. She was outside trying to get in. On a different occasion, or excuse me, she buzzed people in. Are you kicking something? I'm moving my feet. I'm antsy. Okay. Um, She buzzed people in other units in my complex to get in at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, which was a different time, and somehow got names, addresses, and numbers of 18 different girls I've been with over the past three or four years. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Sent a very nasty letter to each one. I tried to reason with her, but she's out of control. Now all of the girls who receive letters are concerned as to what she'll do next. I'm concerned also, so I made the call <clears throat> to the, uh, the players have at our disposal, I think he missed a couple words, regarding credible threats. Now a U.S. Marshal and the FBI have taken the case, and once they do a background, <clears throat> excuse me, and find Monica is an illegal from Poland, it's a good bet she'll be deported. Mm. On June 1st, 2006, Sean filed for and was granted an emergency order of protection, writing on the petition in his handwriting that he wrote specifically, yeah. quote, starting May 3rd, 2006, respondent, who was Monica, started with harassing phone calls around 10.30 p.m. On May 4th, respondent stood outside my residence, yelling and striking window around 8 p.m. Police was called. Respondent left at their request. Respondent returned around 1 a.m. and broke window. Respondent returned May 6th and began striking second window. So that's a lot more than yeah. what he originally said. Right. Okay. So <clears throat> uh, the petition was granted on the basis of harassment and stalking. And so order pro protection orders are funny because it says on there that she is not allowed to stalk, harass, um, f 
physically touch, like stuff that's illegal. (laughs) She's not allowed to do that anyways. Right. But now she's really not allowed to do that. Yeah, it just specifies in there. Um, So on now, I think this date is wrong. On June 6, 2006, as a result of Shu's investigation, Monica was arrested by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Mm. ICE. Uh, she re- was released after posting a $15,000 bond. Now, according to paperwork from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Monica uh, had been alleged to be violent. And this paperwork said that she was arrested without incident at her residence on June 13, 2006. I think that was the actual date of the arrest. Okay. Because Homeland Security was the one to Yeah. Uh, she stated she believed her boyfriend turned her in for stalking him. <laughs> Sweetie, don't admit it. (laughs) Don't admit it. Uh, On June 16th, uh, 2006, Monica filed a motion to vacate the order of protection. Uh, It was denied. And um, paperwork filed on June 23rd, 2006, states that Monica was arrested on June 21st for an alleged violation of the order. I couldn't find record of that. Um. On June 22, 2006, Sean files an amendment to his original petition, stating in his words, quote, On or about June 12, 2006, respondent had a third party call me, leaving a voicemail asking that I, can, that I call the respondent at the respondent's request. Yeah. Uh, on June 16, 2006, I received a letter from the respondent mailed to my home address. The letter was a copy of a notice of motion. The letter also contained a small handwritten note from the respondent reading, Sean, this, this gets dropped if you don't show. Is all that necessary? So just in that, she's violating yeah. the order. Yep. Um, Sean repeatedly had the protection order continued until he was granted a plenary. Is that, am I saying that right? I don't know. Um, order that would be in effect until 2009. Mm. So he wouldn't have to go like every six months or three months or whatever it it was to renew it. Um, According to arrest records, Monica was arrested on October 6th of 2006 by Berwyn PD for knowingly damaging property, invasion of privacy, and criminal trespass to residents. We do not know if that is related to Sean. Okay. Because where would Berwyn come in? Yeah. So we don't know. Um, In a later interview with Tracy Rizzo, who is Sean's attorney... Uh, another girlfriend of Sean had a rental property that burned and it was ruled arson. Uh, they said a suspect was seen fleeing the scene and described the suspect as female white, approximately 20 years of age, blonde hair. Monica is a female white, <laughs> late 20s, blonde hair. Mm. Mm. She, uh, Tracy Rizzo, referenced, quote, letters that Monica Karowska has sent to other women in Gail's life. She also spoke of an email Karaska sent to all of the women. Yeah. The email stated that Monica and Sean were out to dinner and that Gail allegedly surprised her with a note stating they were taking a trip to Florida and he gave her a pendant. Ooh. Rizzo denies this ever happened. However, there is documentation that there was a Florida trip planned in March to which Monica Karasko bought plane tickets for her and Sean. Wow. So it was definitely planned. Yeah. Uh, Rizzo stated that Ronnie received this same email, which she finally read, 
and realized that she had sent the exact same email to a friend previously, except it was London and not Florida. Mm. Uh, Monica would have no knowledge of this email unless she got into his email. Right. Um, Rizzo stated that with that information, she was confident that Karowska had somehow compromised Ronnie's computer. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Gail had only given a note and a pendant to Ronnie, no other woman, mm-hmm. per Rizzo, who it's alleged she was sleeping with too. Um, on October 1st, 2007, Sean signed a petition for um, adjudication of indirect criminal content. Sean scheduled, uh, was scheduled to be a celebrity ambassador for a charity motorcycle ride for the Chicago Abused Women Coalition on or about July 1st, 2007. Do you well, see the irony? Yeah, that's, okay. that's funny. Uh, on or about June 28th, 2007, registered participants, all of them, received two emails from Supergirl, girl is spelled with two R's, <laughs> 6969 at Yahoo. Yes. <laughs> containing defamatory and harassing remarks about the, quote, football player serving as the, quote, celebrity ambassador for the charity She ride. is my girl. <laughs> uh, that said, uh, hang on, uh, to which Rizzo said, <clears throat> that said email contained the same, or some allegations about Sean Gale, which were very similar to the allegations Monica Karowska made about Sean Gale within the harassing letters that were previously sent to third parties by Monica Karowska, which resulted in the plenary, I'm saying that wrong, order of protection being entered against her. Okay. Do you see a pattern? We see a pattern, right? Little we all bit. see the pattern? A little okay. bit. I need to take a drink. Um, what, what are we at? 53 minutes. Okay, perfect. Um, so, Tracy Rizzo went to the courthouse uh, first thing in the morning on October 4th, 2007 to file this paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean signed the paperwork for the indirect criminal contempt. Yeah. Contempt, excuse me. On October 1st, Tracy went to, or- went to file it on yeah. the 4th. Um, Also on October 4th, 2007, Deerfield, Illinois had their first homicide in 30 years. Yikes. Isn't that crazy? It's believable. It's all upper class. Still? 30 years? Mm Mm-hmm. No wife killed her husband at any fucking point in time? Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of the towns up there. Yeah. Up north. That's crazy, though. Are like that. So, the sun rose at 6.50 in the morning, and it was an unseasonably warm day. The news was calling it Indian summer. It was supposed to be in the fucking 80s in mm. October. Yeah. It's not even 80 now. Right. It's May. Just saying. Yeah, um, but we did <clears throat> have that those couple of days that were fucking 90. Yes. So, now, uh, this information is based off of a timeline. Mm-hmm. So, there's going to be a lot of times. Okay. Uh, at 7.50... Christina Amstead woke up from footsteps above her. Her bedroom was directly below Ronnie's kitchen. Ronnie was due to be to work at 8 a.m., but she was running late just like every other day. According to a police investigative report, David Fakara was a co-worker who worked closely with Ronnie at U.S. Food Service. 
He stated the scheduled working hours were 8 to 5, but most people arrive anywhere between 8 and 8.30. Mm. Ronnie would uh, religiously show up between 8 and 8.20, closer to 8.20 most of the time, uh, sometimes later if she was coming from her boyfriend's house in Chicago because of traffic. So she's late. Yeah. All the fuck. She's me. <laughs> right. No. Uh, at 7.52, Manda Cameron leaves her residence for work. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. She observed a male black walking at a fast pace southbound across the lawn close to the building facing her unit. Subject turned to the entrance and went up to the second floor. Uh, the building was determined to be 441 Elm. Uh, she did not see the suspect's face. Yeah. Uh, Amstead heard a, quote, scream and what was described as a, quote, pop, pop then heard a crash-like noise, then silence, and then heard one set of footsteps. Mm. At 7.57 a.m., Amstead called Ronnie's home phone and left a message on her answering machine asking if she had heard anything and asking if Ronnie was okay. She looked out the window and saw Ronnie's Jeep parked outside. Yeah. Uh, Amstead also calls neighbor... uh, Lois Armstrong, I believe, who is in the 443 building to see if she heard anything, to which uh, Lois confirms that she did hear some unusual noise. Hmm. This causes Amstead to call 911 at 807. At 809, Deerfield telecommunicator Marianne assigns the Elm Street call to units 564 and 570. Um, <clears throat> oh, shit, sorry. So, Amanda Cameron, who observed the male black. Yeah. Uh, described him as a male black, approximately uh, 5'10", 261, athletic build. And she said she worked for a plastic surgeon and knew skin tone and jaw lines and was certain that it was a male. Okay. Earmark that. Wow. Okay. Um, fancy. <clears throat> Car 564 arrives on scene at 811 and advises 570 over the radio where to park. At 812, 570 gets stuck by a train on Osterman, and 535 is dispatched to assist 564. Are you following me? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, at 813, 564 goes to Ronnie Ryder's apartment. The door is closed but unlocked with no signs of forced entry. 19 seconds later, he instructs a dispatch to clear, clear the air, which means everybody get off the fucking frequency. Yeah. Um, advises female down in the unit and requests additional units to clear the area and also requests medical assistance. At 8.14, an ambulance is dispatched to 441 Elm Street. Uh, at 8.15, units are instructed by the deputy chief to put nearby Shepherd School, located at 440 Grove Avenue, on lockdown, which they did. Um, <clears throat> at 8.16, Deputy Chief Nick Wilk advises Deerfield uh, FD to stage that the scene is not yet secure, which I put mm. that on purpose. That's not really how it's um, <clears throat> At 8.17, units are instructed to tape off the area. At 8.18, police shut down Elm Street. At 8.21, officers report that they have found three spent rounds. At 8.22, officers inside request one paramedic to come into the unit for uh, confirmation. They know she's dead. Yeah. They need a confirmation. Uh, At 
23, police request a 1028, which is to run a plate, right? Yeah. On plates uh, YN2605. At 825, they come back clear with no record. At 826, 535, request... I can't say that fucking word. Request. Thank you. Requests a call out of the Lake County Major Crimes Task Force. Sergeant Bundy uh, of the Deerfield Police wants the downstairs room at Deerfield PD set up as a command center and to contact the IT guy. Which makes me think of your old IT guy. (laughs) Um, uh, At 829, Deerfield Fire Department Lieutenant McManaman. It's a lot of M's and A's. Yeah, I don't don't know. um, Arrives at the unit. So he was the one paramedic that went. At 831. Our paramedics would be like, fuck that. (laughs) They'd all come in. Yeah. (laughs) Right? That's what we usually do. I know. Except when uh, I pulled up and all the firemen had their masks on. I was like, I got a new guy and a trainee. Go get him. Um, at 831, the task force activation is complete. Officers from Glencoe, Highland Park, Lake Forest, Riverwoods, and North Brook respond to the call out. And just knowing those towns offhand... None of them probably had murders in the last 30 years. It's funny that they have a task force because usually uppity departments like that have a lot of detectives. Yeah. So. I didn't even know there was a town called Riverwoods. Yeah. I drove through it for training. Oh. To get the Buffalo Grove. Um, At 8.50 in the morning, Sean texts Ronnie, quote, are you, using the letters R-N-U, like your dad, uh, are you at work? Uh, what? Interesting. Oh, uh, I put in a note. He later leaves this out during his interview. Mm. Uh, obviously, Ronnie Ryder was the female down. She was found deceased, lying prone, which is on her belly, on the kitchen floor. I don't know why I wrote prone. Like, I wasn't going to have to explain it. <gasps> you know what I forgot to tell you? What? So, um, after my surgery, because I was on my belly, yeah, they um, noted a possible, like, beginning of a sore yeah. on my knee. Oh, really? In the exact same spot as yours. I totally forgot to tell you that. It's creepy. It is creepy. Because I was like, I got no spots on my knees. My husband does. And they're yeah. like, no, it's written down that you do. I'm like, N- no, it's him. It's creepy. Yeah. Um, so she was still carrying her gym bag, which was hooked on her right shoulder. And the bag was resting on her back. Um, what is that word? Purse was resting above her right shoulder, covering Ronnie's face. Her keys were under her right hand, which was palm down parallel with her head. Her left arm was raised at the shoulder with her hand appearing to be under her head. Her head appeared to be resting on its left side with her face facing the right. There was a Whole Foods grocery bag to the right of her containing what appeared to be her lunch. In the crime scene photos, a set of keys is noted on the floor between Ronnie's thighs. The keys did not belong to Ronnie. And it is speculated and has been allegedly said that they belong to one of the officers on the scene. Awesome. Great. Yeah. However, it's not documented <laughs> anywhere except the photos. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I say speculated because I couldn't find any documentation on whose keys they are, but they definitely were not 
Yeah. Ronnie's. Um, so the entry door opens into the kitchen. It's off uh, the west kitchen wall, off the main hallway. So, like, there's the hallway, and you open the door, and the kitchen's right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was hinged to open uh, to the inside of the kitchen. So if you're opening the door, you have to kind of go into the kitchen. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Um, the kitchen is 10 feet by 9 feet. And the area that the shooter was active was approximately five feet by five feet. A total of eight bullets were fired. Four were removed from Ronnie during autopsy. Three were found in the kitchen and the threshold to the dining room. Six discharge cartridge casings were within the kitchen and hallway outside the kitchen door. And five unfired nine millimeter caliber cartridges were also recovered. Mm. Um, And now... In no order whatsoever. I need to stress that. No order whatsoever. Yeah. These are her wounds. She had a perforating gunshot wound to the back of her head. Uh, it was There were perforations of her scalp, mouth, and tongue. Concessive uh, skull fractures, a laceration of her brainstem, occipital joint fractures, and dislocation, and concussive contusions of the brain. Went in the back of her head, came out her mouth, pretty much. Yeah. And, like, shattered her face, yeah. is what that means. Jesus. Uh, perforating GS, gunshot wound, excuse me, to the chest and left shoulder. There were perforations of the soft tissue and muscle and concussive contusion of the left lung. There was a penetrating GSW to the abdomen, which caused perforations of the small intestines, uh, the gravid uterus, which gravid means there's a baby in there. Uh, and muscles. It also caused hemoperitoneum, which is intra-abdominal hemorrhage. Uh, There's a perforating gunshot wound, another one, to the abdomen. This caused perforations of the small intestines, the gravid uterus, and the fetus. Uh, Intrauterine fetal demise of a normally developed six to seven month gestation female fetus. Uh, There was a bullet that possibly severed the baby's spinal cord. So even if Ronnie survived, the baby would not have survived. Uh, There was a penetrating GSW of the back and abdomen, which caused perforation of the pelvic bone, small intestines, gravid uterus, placenta, and the fetus. There was also a penetrating uh, gunshot wound of the right buttock, which caused perforations of the muscle and pelvic bone, and a perforating gunshot wound of the left forearm, which caused perforations of muscle and soft tissue. both Ronnie and her unborn child, who they had named Skylar, were pronounced dead at the scene. Police started canvassing the area and speaking to the surrounding residences. Wynn Dunton, I believe, did not see anything that morning, but did state that on September 26th or September 27th, she saw a male black walking around the parking lot as if trying to familiarize himself with the layout. He stared her down as if he didn't want her in the area or watching her. She was unable to describe his face. Um, Peter Cowell saw male black at 7.50 to 7.55 at some point during that time, running from the parking lot area of the 441 building into a black-colored mid-sized vehicle in the driver's side. This is what he said on October 4th. Mm-hmm. When the task force went back and interviewed him on January 8th, 2007, he now told police that the male black was actually 5 feet to 5'2". On 10 again, Amanda Cameron gave her statement saying that um, to two detectives on the 4th, excuse me, um, 
Investigator Burke and Detective Baldowski from the task force. I don't know what departments they're from. Doesn't matter. Um, said she saw a male black skipping every other step on the stairs to the 441 building. They asked if the person was wearing a face covering or makeup, and she said uh, forcefully, no. On January 1st, 2007, three detectives from the task force, uh, Detective Burnus, Detective Nichols, or and Detective uh, Mazrigus, went back to interview her. To which now she said the male black that she saw was five feet two five five, and when asked if he was mar- wearing makeup, she said, "Sure, it was makeup or paint." Ooh. Okay. It's a big difference. Yeah. Now remember, this is the one who worked for the plastic surgeon. Yeah. And said, "I know skin tones. I know jawlines. Right. It was a dude. Okay. Yeah. Um." <clears throat> On 10-4, obviously, Christina Am said heard footsteps, a scream, and then a, quote, pop-pop, which caused her to call 911. On October... Was it pop-pop or pew-pew? I think it was pop-pop, she said. Uh. Yes. On October 30th, Detective Falenko went back to re-interview her. I believe Detective Falenko was with Deerfield PD. Uh, He went back to interview her, and she says now she remembers a TV show with a silencer that was used, and she thinks that's the sound she heard. Doesn't that not okay. defeat the purpose of a silencer? Yeah, sure. So I wondered, I mean, sometimes condos and apartments, you can mm-hmm. hear stuff. But if you have a silencer on a weapon, is the upstairs neighbor or excuse me, downstairs neighbor going to be able to hear it? Because if you do, that defeats the point of a fucking silencer. Yeah, I don't know. I've never shot with one, so I don't They never tested the theory, which yeah. I wish they would have. Why? What, like, why? Is that stupid to think that they should have? No, they kind of should have. You know. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> multiple neighbors and residents of the complex left for work. There was a ton of them that were interviewed, and I, I didn't write them all down. Um, they left for work and or put their kids on the school bus between the hours of 6.30 and 7.55 and saw nothing. Um, after... Seeing pictures around the condo of Sean, police conclude that this must be Ronnie's boyfriend. Now, they all know who the fuck he is. Mm-hmm. So, they're walking around now with swinging fucking boners because right. they got to talk to him. He's the, essentially the spouse. The spouse right. always does it. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, now I am going to kind of mix interviews. Mm-hmm. With Sean and other people as it is relevant, and also a timeline. We probably should cut it off soon, too. What is it? We're at an hour and ten minutes. Yeah, we'll cut it off right after this. Okay. Okay. Um, I just don't want to get too far into we're not, the murder. And, we're not. We're know. not at all. So we're still on the day of. Okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Sean voluntarily went to Deerfield PD after placing a 911 call. He originally called 411 to get the number for 911. Oh, dude. Sir, it's 911. Okay? So, uh, I do have a recording of the 911 call. But, like, did he call 411 and be like, excuse me, could I have the number for 911? We don't know. I don't have the tape for that. But (laughs) I I hope he fucking did. (laughs) 
I hope he did because uh, that four one one, which we don't have anymore, but that four one one chick would have been like, "Are you fucking kidding me, right. dude?" So uh, Sean does call nine one one. Yeah. Um, and he questions, which is weird. Yes. I, th- it, that's that just, weird to begin with. That that strikes me as it weird. It gets weirder. So the first thing he says is, uh, I'm calling in regards to a shooting in Deerfield PD, or in Deerfield, where the police think that I'm a suspect. It's the first fucking thing he says. How does he know he's a suspect? Exactly, because he's not yet. Then goes on to say, is it Ronnie Ryder? Oh, dude, this... Okay. So right. And the dispatcher tells him, he's like, you know, is it Ronnie Ryder? Is she okay? And the dispatcher's like, yes, it's her. No, she's not okay. So and why he, is the dispatcher giving this info on I don't, the phone? I don't know. But then, like, any of you who have seen Intervention mm. are quite familiar with the man. I'm walking on sunshine. No, the other guy who's just like, mm. that is exactly what he sounded like. <laughs> worst motherfucking acting I've ever heard in my life. I just want to say I love you. In part two, (laughs) literally, that's what he sounds like. And then says, I need to call her parents. Bitch, you have met them three fucking times. You are not going to be the one notifying them. Right. So they instruct him to go to Deerfield PD. Yeah. He was on his way to, to her house. Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So Detective George Falenko and Detective Scott Frost interview um, <clears throat> Sean together. Mm-hmm. Together. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there are two different reports, in, investigative reports, Written about this interview, one is uh, written by Detective Falenko on October 5th. It's typed up. The other one was typed up by uh, Detective Scott Frost on October 15th. There should not be two reports. Correct. That's fine if you interview them together, but one of you does the report. You're going to contradict each other. Which they do. Uh, According to... <clears throat> Excuse me. According to uh, Flanco's report, Sean says he woke up around 9 a.m. According to Frost's report, uh, his alarm went off and woke him up between 9.15 and 9.20. He doesn't uh, remember what time he set the alarm for. Mm-hmm. However, let's remember that his phone records show that he texted Ronnie Ryder at 8.50 in the morning, mm. which he obviously did not tell the police. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, I think I I think I mixed it up. He told Falenko nine fifteen to nine twenty for us. Okay, so he tells uh, Falenko that he woke up from his alarm at nine fifteen to nine twenty. Uh, he had it set for a. Oh no, I'm sorry. This is Frost. I'm gonna start over. Yeah, because now I'm with Falenko. Sean told him, uh, the detectives, he had woke up around 9 and then drove to a pre-scheduled appointment with a physical therapist. In Frost's report, it states, woke up from alarm at 9.15 to 9.20, unsure of what time. Uh, Patient had appointment at Schultz Performance Center at 11 a.m. in either Deerfield or Highland Park with therapist Bob Schultz. 
Uh, he was in PT for a recent motorcycle accident that he had in Gray's Lake. Uh, I could not find Schultz Performance Center anywhere, so I don't know if it is still open. And Deerfield and Highland Park are an eight-minute drive apart for each, from each other, so yeah. I would think you would know what fucking town you were going yeah, to. Yeah, I would think shit. so, too. Um, <clears throat> he then tells, uh, Falenko then types, on the way to the appointment, he decided to contact his barber to see the possibility of getting a haircut. Sean then drove to the barber shop in North Chicago, arriving at approximately 10.30. Frost writes... Gail departed his residence at approximately 9.45 and once in his car, contacted Barber to see if he could get in for a haircut. Gail said he called Leroy's in North Chicago from his cell phone and learned from the owner that he had an opening. Gail said once he terminated that phone call, he contacted his accountant and left a message. Hmm. Uh, He then listed the directions that he took. According to Google Maps and these directions, it was an approximate 42-minute drive. He uh, arrived at approximately 10.15. Now, according to phone records, Sean checked his voicemail uh, on his phone at 9.50 a.m. At 10.23 a.m., Sean calls Leroy's barbershop. And nine minutes later, at 10.32 a.m., Sean arrives at Leroy's. And that's from a time-stamped photo from the cameras in Leroy's parking lot. Right. Um. Now, they do end up interviewing Leroy that day. Leroy. Um, so, he is interviewed by uh, detectives, uh, whose names I can't say, Niles and Burke, and there's another one, of the task force at approximately 1 o'clock on 10 of 2007. He stated that he had been, um, <clears throat> excuse me, he stated he cut Gail's hair after he arrived around 8.30 or 10 a.m., could not give an exact time and that he came alone. It's a pretty big It's a broad gap. Yeah. Uh, Leroy went on to say that he has been cutting Gail's hair for the past 17 years. Which blows my mind. He, he can't shave it himself? Yes. <laughs> um, he normally comes in in the afternoon around 1 a.m. He calls an hour before coming to the shop to make sure that they're not busy. And this was the first time he had come in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Leroy said today he received a phone call 10 minutes prior to Gail's arriving. And again, Gail arrived some, sometime between 8.30 a.m. and 10 a.m. Uh, Leroy said when Gail got there, he did not seem to be acting unusual. He said uh, that usually when Gail comes in, he will grab a magazine to read while getting his hair cut. Um, <clears throat> however, today he grabbed two magazines and just held them in his hand. He did not open them. Um... Then Leroy uh, started the haircut. Sean received a phone call from John, unknown last name. Gail got out of the chair, took the call that lasted approximately five to six minutes. After he got back in the chair, he told Leroy that he received a phone call stating that a girl he knew was shot and law enforcement thought he was responsible for it. Gail said he needed to go straighten it out, but told Leroy to finish his haircut. Well, you got to. Uh, he, Leroy was then asked how Sean pays for his haircut and, or how he paid for it. And Leroy said, um, first he said he did not seem too emotional about the news that he received. The rest of the haircut took five to 10 minutes and then Gail left. Leroy said Gail doesn't pay for haircuts, but they barter for them in, uh, so in exchange for haircuts, Leroy will get stuff like trips to Hawaii. Dude, I want to be a barber. Or tickets. Or the like. 
Yeah. What? I want to be a barber. What the fuck? Right? (laughs) (laughs) So, Leroy said the only two people in the shop were his two co-workers, Curry Ball and Omar Long. Now, allegedly, I have no confirmation of this, there is a witness who was in the barber shop when Sean arrived, unknown time, but when he arrived, he was frantic. Leroy pulled Sean into the back and was heard yelling at Sean to get his shit together. And Sean came out with red eyes and a puffy face. Aww. (laughs) So, uh, according to phone records, at 10.35, Sean receives a call from girlfriend Bianca Camarina. Mm -hmm. At 10.36, he receives a call from Tracy Rizzo, which, remember, is his lawyer. Yeah. Um, She is still, assumingly, at the courthouse. After, so now he tells Falenco. Yeah. After arriving at approximately 10.30, Sean received a phone call from an acquaintance from Fox News, John Escu. Yeah. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay, telling him. Uh, I, I think that's how you pronounce it, but okay. yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, you're going to know a lot of people that I'm talking about coming up. Uh, telling him that news reports were saying that a shooting incident had occurred in Deer- Deerfield involving a girlfriend of Gail's. Uh, Shortly after that call, Sean received a call from another friend, Tom Thayer, advising him of the same information. Sean attempted to text Ronnie. Uh, Sean then left the barbershop at 11 a.m., feeling nervous, and contacted friend Emery Moorhead, asking for advice. Moorhead instructed him to contact the Deerfield PD. Sean did so and arranged to go to the Deerfield police station. Frost then, sorry, babe. Frost then writes. Gail said during haircut he received a call on his cell phone from John. Oh, maybe it's Escra. Yeah. Okay. That from sounds, John. Sounds more like it. Okay. Um, who is a producer at Fox Entertainment Group in the Chicago office and was also uh, his former boss. Escra informed him of a shooting in Deerfield that a school in the area had been put on lockdown and Sean was being named as a suspect, which he was not. Right. Uh, police said that they just wanted to talk to him for obvious reasons. Yeah. You know, uh, Gail asked Escra to get more info and to call him back. Gail terminated the call and told the barber to hurry up with his haircut. Hurry up, Leroy. Uh, I would just like to say that the shop is now um, owned by a gentleman named Junebug. Really? Yeah, it's called <laughs> JB's Barbershop. That's even better. Um, which, uh, amazing. Right. Amazing. Um <clears throat> <clears throat> Gail became concerned and checked his home messages because close friends will leave messages at his house for serious things. What? It's 2007. Why do you still have a landline? Right. Um, he discovered no messages. Shortly after, he left Leroy's and received a call from Tom Thayer. Thayer also informed him of the shooting and being named a suspect. And Thayer said that news crews were at Hallis Hall. Uh, they were packing. Hallis Hall. Hallis Hall. What's that? It's their training facility. Oh, Hallis Hall. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, That the news crews were packing up there uh, and they were going to attempt to find Sean for an interview. Sean asked there to get more information and call him back. Gail called his home again to check his messages with no messages. Uh, During that time, Thayer called and Sean declined the call, but then called him back. Uh, Thayer told him he had no info. Hmm. According to phone records at 1041, uh, John Escra calls Sean and the phone call lasts six minutes. 
<clears throat> According to time-stamped photographs, Sean leaves the barbershop uh, at 10.57. In these photos, Sean is clearly on a phone. Yeah. Um, so this would be right around the time that Sean was calling home to check his messages. Mm-hmm. However, on his primary phone number, the only phone number that he gave police, yeah. there is no activity on his phone at this time. So he's got a Batman he's phone. He's got a burner. Yeah. Um, at 11.01, he receives a text from attorney Tracy Rizzo. 11.03, he received another call from Thayer. Um, <clears throat> according to Thayer's later interview, Sean also told him that he was at physical therapy, not at the barber shop. Mm. Uh, at 11.05, Sean calls Ronnie's cell phone. 11.06, he again checks his voicemail. 11.07, he calls Tom Thayer. At 11.10, he calls Rizzo's office at 11.11. He, or excuse me, he calls her cell at 11.11. He calls her office. At 11.13, he calls Ronnie's home phone. What? Hmm. Dude. Yeah. What do you do? Why? Hmm. I don't know, babe. Oh at 11.15, he calls close friend Emery Moorhead. <clears throat> so now he tells Frost. Uh, Gail says, or excuse me, Frost types up. Gail said he was confused on what to do, and he contacted longtime friend Emery Moorhead while exiting Deerfield Road. Uh, Gail said that Moorhead knew the victim because he had sold her the condo in Deerfield. Uh, Gail said he learned Moorhead was in Evanston, and he was unavailable to assist and told Gail it would be best to contact the police and not go to the victim's house. Now... Moorhead's in Evanston. You can't help him, right? Right. Okay. Um, Emery Moorhead was interviewed on October 4th, 2007 by Detective Lambie at Deerfield PD at 1 o'clock. Hmm. Uh, he came in at the request of Gail. Yeah. He said that Gail called him at 11, stating Ronnie had been shot, and he needed Emery to meet him at Deerfield PD. Um after saying that mutual f- friend, Tom Thayer, called him. <clears throat> Excuse me. So during his interview, uh, Emery did meet him at the station. Okay. And he got there. Uh, Sean arrived before him. He was unable to speak to him in person because Sean was already in an interview. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Emery told um, the... Uh, police interviewing him that he never told Gail he was in Evanston and he went right to the police station because his office is in Deerfield. Yeah. I was going to say he got there fairly quick. Yeah. So. So that's where we're going to leave it. Okay. We still have obviously more interview from Sean. Oh yeah. Um, Lots more. Oh yeah. But have we noticed a pattern? A little bit. Okay. A little bit. So, the person who's in prison has not been mentioned, but once. Yeah. That's it. That's kind of saying something. Hmm. Hmm. And we're not being biased. I'm not we're, being biased at all. This is all documented information. Because, so. I'll be honest with you, I've seen the Snapped episode. <laughs> I went in with, she, he probably put her up to it. Yeah. Not so much what I think now. But like you said, it's not biased. 90%, 99% of this is not opinion. It's factual. 
Um, I, that's why I make a point to say that I'm reading off of an investigative police report. Right. Because that's what I have. Because if you go by anybody else, oh my God. Then it's biased. I, uh, I'll get into part two of the, the articles, the newspaper articles and, and shit like that. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> that's going to be the is, end of part one. This was good so far. So if you haven't, if you don't know about this case, just Google it and read a couple articles about it. Mm-hmm. And then listen. Yeah. Because you're going to see a lot of discrepancies. Yeah. And there's going to be more. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. All right. Well, that was good. Um, we're going to do part two fairly soon. Yeah, like tomorrow. tomorrow. if we can. <laughs> we'll see how things go. Yeah. But definitely this week, so you won't have to wait too no. long for it. No. And the only reason we're doing it is because Mark can't sit here for... Yeah, three hours. Yeah. I, I can't do it. So I apologize. Um, our Patreons, thank you so much again. You guys are the tits. Yes. Um, if you want to become a Patreon, please join. What is it, babe? www.patreon.com forward slash DDUP podcast. No, it's death do us part number one dot com. That's Twitter. Mm-mm. That's our Patreon. Did we talk about this before? Yes, we did. And I was right and you were wrong. Whatever. <clears throat> Whatever. Our last episode, you get to hear us talking about wieners. So Yeah, a lot. A lot of wieners. Well, one in particular, but right, you know. But I think it's perfect timing now because the dog is. He's getting antsy. Getting antsy, keeps rubbing up against my leg. Ugh. And now he unplugs something. Hitting the thing. Yeah. All right. Well, we're done. All right. Thank you guys again, and uh, like I said, it will be later this week. Hopefully tomorrow if yeah. we can. But um, Stop it. Thank you guys so much, and we will be talking to you soon. Bye. Bye.